So, in a telling yet uncharacteristic concession to propriety, Xavier Herbert changed the title of his 1938 novel, as Janina said, from the neologism Black Velvet to Capricornia. His shying away from the title is descriptive of the veil conventionally drawn over interracial intimacies, which is what I'm going to talk about today. As well as I should forewarn you that I'm actually going to show some images of Aboriginal women that are highly, highly offensive. And I do so in the spirit of wanting to um, really expose that um, racism and misogyny hinged in very particular ways in Australia. And it's a, it's a history that we should be aware of so that we're able to, you know, pursue reconciliation, recognition um, with understandings about these precedents. So that's why. All right. So he's shying away from the title as descriptive of the veil conventionally drawn across interracial intimacies as well as the repression of this catchphrase in print media. But it certainly isn't descriptive of the themes that Herbert pursued in both Capricornia and his 1975 Poor Fellow, My Country. Both works not only shattered the hypocrisy and dissembling that went on around white men's sexual use of Aboriginal women, but they also movingly detailed the pain and desire felt across the racial cleave and the tragic experiences of half-caste children often unacknowledged by their fathers and under the assimilation regime. In Capricornia, the character Peter Differ gives an impassioned defence of interracial sexual relations to Oscar Shillingsworth, uncle to the half-caste Nornim, Nor Nor or also known as Norman, whose genesis in the casual sexual relations between white men and Aboriginal women forms the spine of the book, as it does Poor Fellow. Differ puts the confronting question, what chance, he says, do half-caste girls, uh, do half-caste women have to do anything else but whores? have to be anything else but whores. And he contends, moral sense is something taught. It's not taught to half-caste girls. They're looked upon from birth as part of the great dirty joke, black velvet. Differ decries that decent white men can't woo and marry one honestly without being labelled a combo. Complaining it makes his guts bleed, Differ explains that despite there being 20,000 half-castes in Australia, this common practice is hidden. He lambasts Oscar's shrugging and shirking, saying, you're like the majority of people in Australia. You hide from this very real and terrifically important thing and hide it and come to think after a while that it doesn't exist. But it does. It does. Differ laments that when the, the men who raise their kids are despised while the rest go combo, mainly on the sly. Clearly, Herbert's expose of interracial sexual relations, particularly in Northern Australia, was a radical departure from the repression and dissimulation around colonial intimacies. But in Differ's justification, it is taken as a given, an unquestioned reality, that white men in remote stretches must have a sexual outlet. If white women aren't accessible in the remoter reaches of the North, their only recourse is either Aboriginal women or to become sexual perverts, as in homosexual. He calls these relations with women quite natural flutters and insists, how can they help it? The men ruin, uh, ruin that any... How can they help it, the men? Ruin that any resulting children are just ignored. So the sexual schema that Herbert both eroticises and exposes of white men's access to black women was at odds with the sexual mores of the day, even putting racial, interracial sex to one side. Companionate marriage and romantic monogamy were the order of the day. Poor Fellow was published the same year. The Family Law Act of 1975 made provision for no-fault divorce. 
But prior to this, under the Matrimonial Causes Act of 1959, a spouse seeking dissolution of marriage had to prove marital fault through 14 grounds, of which adultery was, was but one. The 1975 Act was the culmination of decades of reform to laws deriving from Victorian-era sexual politics, such as the British Divorce and Matrimonial Causes Act of 1857. At the time of writing Capricornia, sexual relations outside marriage, let alone across race, were subject to the, to, to the double standards, gender inequity and ecclesiastical codes inherited um, from Victorian Britain. Monogamy was the only permissible form of European sexual relations. For all the proliferation of sexual practices and identities in the Victorian era and beyond, but it was also racialized. Polygamy comprised the third prong in conceptions of savagery, along with cannibalism and infanticide, both oh, hang on. from the time of the exploratory voyages. Exotic marital rights, such as bride capture and child bestowal, both unsubstantiated, were a particular fascination for Europeans within the burgeoning uh, genre, native genre of, of native mar uh, mar marriage rights. Over the period Herbert penned his two major works, State Protection Boards intensified controls over interracial intimacies, ostensibly as a protective measure against the manifest abuses against Aboriginal women and girls, scapegoated onto lower order males, men. But really these controls were a means to realise a racially homogenised white Australia under the pitiless regulations of the assimilation regime. European and colonial strictures around monogamous marriage were not distinct legal realms, but were rather set in contradistinction. In Anne McGrath's analysis of the variegated formations of marriage across the Australian frontier, she shows the dependence of 18th century notions of civilised marriage on rebuffing those of the primitive and discusses the significance of property to the ordering of monogamy. Thus, property and the institution of marriage mutually conform each other confirm each other. European marriage law passed on inherited property through the agnatic bloodlines, monogamy, particularly women's, guaranteed. Primitive polygamy thus disqualified indigenous men's property in women's bodies and by extension, I think, in land tenure. And it was property, particularly that invested in land, that was contested under settler colonialism. Thus monogamy, inheritance, the custody of children and land, were critical schemas to the settler colonial project. Aboriginal polygamy, along with uh, commonly held views that Aboriginal men prostituted their women, were a means to dismiss Aboriginal men as licentious of their women and thus not entitled to or capable of holding property, rather conveniently also land. If the settler colonial project rested, as Patrick Wolfe has argued, on a logic of elimination of the indigenous, Herbert's advocacy for interracial marriage met Wolfe's description of that chronic negator of the logic of elimination, namely the white man's libido. Herbert's novels are set in the historical milieu when assimilation was formally adopted as, as federal policy. And Herbert not only behaved badly within this schema of elimination, but he crowed about it, crediting himself as the biggest gin rooter in the territory. And he wrote about it with fervour and splendour, I think and then took out national prizes for it. Despite the demise of these policies, Herbert's works have since slipped from the national imaginary. So the desire that white men felt for Aboriginal women was thus critically important, and arguably its expression was repressed. 
until the cynical and entirely scientifically spurious yet state-enforced administration of biological absorption of breeding out the colour, this desire threatened to upend the settler colonial project. Fiona Proben Rapsi has detailed the fantasies of breeding that underlaid both Chief Protector Cook's and Herbert's utopian racial destinies. But Herbert did not want to absorb the black race into the white, but rather give rise to a new race, the hybrid Eurasian, who brought together the best traits of European and Aboriginal embodied in the golden boy Prindy. The policy of assimilation assumed, rather naively, that white men having sex with Aboriginal women would marry them. And since they rarely did, the policy depended on the removal of half-caste children, ostensibly because they weren't being recognised by their white fathers, but also to regulate Aboriginal women's sexuality through controlling their sexual contact and marriages. Cohab cohabiting was prohibited under the Aborigines' ordinance, and marriage needed the consent of the chief protector. In Poor Fellow, Herbert exposes the prevailing notion among outback men that Aboriginal women were easy for the taking, as Ernest Steinhill put it, in the rape of Nellieri by one of the Nowes brothers. Herbert rent apart the veil conventionally drawn across interracial sexual activity, and he complicated the notion that all interracial gendered contact was prostitution. Hitherto, aside from the indignation of a handful of sympathetic humanitarians or piously appalled missionaries and clergy, encounters with white men were secreted from the wider public or giving, given glancing acknowledgement as a necessary evil in remote regions suffering a frightful want of females, expressly white. In openly expressing white men's desire for Aboriginal women, Herbert lay bare the causal chronology that impelled the assimilationist re regime, kicked off by white men's desire. So it's worth understanding the nature of that desire, therefore, before we can situate Herbert's quite radical intervention into these structuring absences, into what we might call, what we might identify as a distinct arena and modality of sexuality that was intrinsic to settler colonialism. How did racialized beauty reveal the foundational genderedness of settler colonialism? It wasn't just the irrepressible virility of the priapic pioneer that excited the trysts that Herbert so lovingly details. Herbert broke with convention by openly acknowledging and intimately describing Aboriginal women's desirability, which he both racialised and revered. In Mark uh, Schillingworth, Norman's father's first Tripanga expedition, Mark approaches a native camp to purchase some tourist memorabilia and is offered a comely girl. Herbert's description is a lingering blazon of yearning, which he evidently derived considerable pleasure from writing. He writes, one who was observant and aesthetic would have gloated over the perfect symmetry expressed in the curves of the wide mobile nostrils and arched septum of her fleshy nose, would have delighted in her peculiar pouting mouth with thick puckered lips of colour reddish black like withered rose. Withered rose in the lustrous irises and fleckless white-of-egg whites of her large, black, slightly tilted eyes, in her long, luxuriant, bronzy lashes, in the curves of her neck and back, in the coppery black colour of her velvet skin and its fascinating musky odour, and might have kept her talking in order to delight in her slow, deep, husky voice, or laughing in order to delight in the flash of her perfect teeth and gums and the lazy movement of her eyes. 
Nellieri, the mother of the exquisite boy, hybrid boy Prindy, around whom the narrative of Poor Fellow trajects, is also lovingly detailed, as is Jeremy de Lacy's Aboriginal wife, Nanago. The public expression of this, this sexual adoration of Aboriginal women was, for 1938, highly unusual. There had been many thinly veiled declarations of enthrallment. How do I do this? of enthrallment of the native bell, which I've elsewhere described, in publications emanating from the South Sea voyages of Cook and others. It was therefore, I didn't do that. It was therefore, um, it was there, albeit draped in classical conventions, and she's quite Europeanized, in Augustus Earle's circa 1826 painting, Women of New South Wales, Woman of New South Wales. The native bell was purportedly unselfconsciously beautiful. Hers was not a beauty of artifice and therefore modernity. It was natural. Images such as this photograph of the woman Zhangzhu, originally taken by photographer Lint, was circulated over decades, and it was variously captioned, a brunette beauty. The regular, damn it, the regular oval features and beautiful eyes of this Aboriginal girl might be the envy of many of her white sisters, and she was a perfect type of Aboriginal girlhood. Settlers clearly had an investment in Indigenous beauty, ranging from sexual desire to romantic nostalgia for a natural femininity that was vanishing. So Herbert salvages the girl's unwitting beauty as a kind of redemption from the ruin of the tribal. So beauty was racialized within this visual schema. It entered into the vista of the native. The exploratory surveying gaze and the conquest of the world as perspective, along with scientific racism and ethnological scrutiny, those things had shaped the lens through which Indigenous women were seen and perceived as racially distinct. But the overt sexualisation of their beauty, the unguarded expression of European desire, that was rare. Significantly, the expressions I have found appeared in the span of years between Herbert's two major novels. So this glazed ashtray nakedly referenced the desirability of Aboriginal women and, as, and was as such very rare. Indeed, I think this may be the only image of Aboriginal women in lingerie. Damn it. Pervading the colonial scene was the unstated frisson, mostly nostalgia, for visual access to the near-naked bodies of traditionally living Aboriginal women. This ethno-porn was referenced by the post-war images of Martinus, and you'll know his, there are many of these, who perhaps not coincidentally painted onto an actual surface of black velvet. It was also lampooned rather salaciously by Eric Joliffe in his popular Wichity Tribes cartoon series. And anecdotally, I hear that these, uh, these cartoons were quite enjoyed in the North in Aboriginal communities at the time they were published, the 60s and 70s. But the native bell was bookended by women who were scorned and derided for their appearance. Conventions of the monstrous savage inhabiting the antipodes endured from early accounts dating back to Dampier's evaluation of the people at King Sound as having not one graceful feature in their faces. He was still quoted uncritically in 1947 in the magazine Walkabout. And these precedents shaped Herbert's description of Marx Schillingsworth's conflicted desire. He wrestled with himself for seeing beauty in a, creature, in a creature of a type he had been taught to look upon as a travesty of normal humanity. Mark directs all his conflicted contempt towards the Aboriginal man who had offered the girl to him, hating him for a procurer and thinking him utterly base. 
Herbert unusually, however, adds the caveat that Mark couldn't know that this exchange was from part of their customs, that the Aboriginal man was only doing what he had, been, what he had learnt to expect to be asked of him by every white man with whom he had ever come into contact. Herbert notes that Mark also hadn't realised that the man and his kind might love their woman folk just as much as white men do, even though they were not so jealous of their conjugal rights. In Poor Fellow, Herbert overlays his challenge to double standards about interracial sexual relations with passionately held notions of, of national belonging. He directly advocates, as we've talked about today, a Creole nation of Eurasians instead of being just lousy copies of the stock we come from. De Lacey expounds, in my opinion, a beautiful breed of people could have been created if only our forebears had had the courage to breed with the Aborigines like men instead of just like dirty little boys. And one that would have loved the land because they truly belonged to it. But this all came about because of the traditional woman lending of Aborigines, which is how, he argues, the country was actually settled. De Lacey explains, you're bound as a black fellow to lend your woman to a trusted stranger who has none. Use of his woman by others means nothing to a black fellow. It's more, than a, it's more to do with friendship, relationship or trade. And the women themselves, according to De Lacey, they prefer the white man every time, even if he's rubbish. <laughs> of course, this depends on the long-standing European construct of promiscuous primitive sexuality, which De Lacey draws on in describing the blacks as the true Bacchanalians. De Lacey then asks, have you ever thought what the Australian nation would have been if the pioneers had succored their hybrid offspring? He answers, the boss's bed could have been the foundation for harmony and a new society. What a man like Xavier can do with his penis, hey? <laughs> Having, the bemo having bemoaned the lack of white women as the cause of the irrepressible sexual activity of white men, the entrance of white women into the remote areas who saw the use of Aboriginal women as exploitative could only stall such a quest as Herbert's for naturalisation. De Lacey complains, the trouble was there. The trouble was, uh, was there, there was, sorry, I don't know why that's back to front, were the white women that had to be reckoned with. Eventually, they'd come looking for their men and find them gin-jockeying. As they say, they'd empty out their black rivals and call in the police at any show of resentment. And that's how the country was settled, settled and civilised. So this repression of a distinct national sexuality, an Australian race, by white women was only effective, however, for as long as white men tolerated it. The problem was that Anglo-Celt men were too afraid of their prudish heritance, their white wives, he says. Whereas it was the missus who put the stock whip around the dusky interloper she found with her old man in this country, the Spanish-bred master would put it around his wife for intruding in his private business. I feel sure that but for the fear of women, but for the fear of women, our forefathers would have been proud enough of their half-breed bastards at least to feed them, or rather honest enough in their pride because the pride is there still in secret. I stress this thing about our women because it's the crux of this thing. It's the crux of this thing. So, with Aboriginal women and their men suitably compliant, and you notice Aboriginal men don't really figure as sexual beings. There's this little boy, there's Bob Wiradiri. There, there isn't a kind of masculine Aboriginal virility in these works, I don't think. Could be wrong, but anyway. 
So with Aboriginal women and their men suitably compliant and white men perpetually rampant, it is only white women who can inhibit the realisation of a nation authentically inseminated to spring from the lean loins of the land, thereby rectifying white men's spurious claim to it. And I reckon that's the crux of the thing, white men's spurious claim to the land. So to conclude, while at first glance Herbert's novels are a paean to interracial intimacy, you know, hooray, including marriage, and a nativist identification with a miscegenation, it is worth heeding Anne Stoller's caveat that hierarchies of privilege and power were written into the condoning of interracial unions as well as into their condemnation. Within de Lacy's marriage to, to Nanago, and I have to say the passages around Nanago and de Lacy, the explicit passages, are some of the most beautiful and tender passages that you'll, you'll read, sexually explicit passages. They're absolutely beautiful and very unusual in that way too, I think. But within his marriage to Nanago, her tolerance of his affairs is descriptive of this kind of frontier sexual utopia he inscribes and its dependence on Aboriginal women who were neither jealous of their conjugal rights um, over white men. So ultimately, Herbert debunked the racially inscribed bi binaries between desire and reason, native instinct and white self-discipline, subversive, unproductive sexuality and productive patriotic sex. Yet he was unable to do so, I don't think, without deploying a robust and unquestioned gendered dichotomy as it had been conventionally enforced through monogamy, which itself rested on racialised notions of civilised versus primitive conjugal rights. Thank you.